A quick note before we begin, because this episode includes a live animal, we have decided to release a video version in addition to the audio podcast you're listening to. If you want to see the video version, you can find a link in the show notes at realfantasticbeasts.com. You can also just go to our YouTube channel at Real Fantastic Beasts 770. This passage is from De Arte Venandi Cum Avibus on the Art of Hunting with Birds by Frederick II from the mid-13th century. For the fact is that they are detained by humans, that they have entangling jesses on their feet, that they remain tied to their perch, that they eat on the human hand, that they remain with humans, that wanting to flee from their perch, as is their custom, they are prohibited from fleeing, that they wear bells or hood, that once they are released, freed, and in command of themselves, they return to humans, that they wait for a human rushing towards them, that they are closed up in the mews, All of these things are against their nature. So then, it remains only through taste they accustom themselves to seeing, touching, and hearing humans, and all the other things that are associated with humans, and doing all the things just said. Hi, I'm Alexa Sand. And I'm Ian McInnes. And this is Real Fantastic Beasts. Because we believe that learning about animals in history and literature and art helps us understand our fellow creatures today. And today we have a couple of guests, Ian. We do. So yes, today we have uh, actually three guests. Uh, we have, That's right. We have two guest experts and our first live animal. And I will say that we, we are a podcast. We are audio but we do actually have a YouTube channel and we're going to put the video up of this podcast on the YouTube channel so that you can see the wonderful live animal that we have with us today. So today we have with us Sarah Petrosillo from the University of Evansville, a medieval uh, literary scholar who has just come out with a book on hawks and women in the Middle Ages. And we have Kelly Martello, who is a member of the Michigan Hawking Society, an ambassador for uh, for hawks in Michigan, and a longtime falconer. Uh, and uh, also, I will say, Kelly has has brought her uh, her bird into my classroom, has allowed my students to hunt with her. Just generally, an amazing person. Thank you. And with Kelly is Vesper, a red-tailed hawk. And uh, Kelly, you want to tell us a little bit about uh, what? Vesper and what we might expect out of Vesper. Absolutely. So uh, Vesper is a red-tailed hawk. Uh, She's about six years old. She's been my hunting partner for almost all of those six years. Um, One of the things, as Sarah mentioned in the intro, is sometimes they'll bait from the glove or they'll leave the glove or their perch. And that's kind of a natural habit of these birds. They never quite realize that they're tethered. They do have free will. And uh, during the summer when they're molting at a little higher weight, they're a little less um, tolerant of some of these situations. So she may jump off my glove, she may bait or flap her wings, and you may hear a lot of bells for those who are listening on the podcast. Um, But usually she comes right back up to the glove, settles back in, um, and she's usually a very tolerant bird. So I'm very excited to be able to show her off today and share her with all of you people out there. Um, I hope you enjoy the podcast and learning a little bit about falconry. 
And one reason we have a, a live bird uh, with us today and a modern falconer is that the practices of falconry as um, for horsemanship have in some ways changed very little from the Middle Ages and the, and the Renaissance. And I think what we're going to hope for is a kind of an interchange where we hear both the differences and the similarities between the modern practice of falconry and the practices of the Middle Ages, but also maybe a reflection on uh, human non-human relations from both the modern perspective and the, and the uh, perspective of the Middle Ages. And as an art historian, I want to jump in here and say, I think um, the source that Sarah read from at the beginning, um, which is a book on the art of falconry, really catches my attention because just like equitation, falconry is considered an art form. So that raises it, I think, up above merely uh, practice into a much more intentional sphere. And so maybe we could start off talking about that, about the sort of what makes it an art as opposed to just a, an agricultural or a hunting practice. Certainly. Yeah. So um, so one of the things that really drew me to this research topic, I mean, the birds are obviously, they've got their own charm and charisma and they're enchanting, but it was really Frederick II and his treatise because I had come across falconry treatises before and they talk about you know, the worms or the diseases or how to cure their maladies. And Frederick never finished his treatise, so he didn't get to that part. But instead, he started by saying, I do not want this to be considered a practical art. I want this to be considered art for the sake of art. Um, And so he really tried to move away from um, placing it in the sort of um, more practical um, arena and learning sphere to elevate it to an art. So that's what he started out to do in his prologue. And um, and I have a, a really great quote here that I think speaks to what Alexa was talking about. And um, so Frederick says, although birds of prey are instruments of the artist, and he uses that word artist, nevertheless, the artist must wrap his mind around keeping and teaching them. The goal that moves the artist and this intent is primary should be to have falcons that are trained through the falconer's art to take those prey birds in the way the falconer wants. The second priority of those trained in the art should be the actual taking of prey in this way. So um, so he's really differentiating between just, hey, this is hunting to put food on the table and it doesn't really matter if my bird catches something so much as it flies beautifully. So he goes through and his whole um, mode of training is to train birds to take prey that they wouldn't normally take in the wild. Um, And so he even goes so far as to teach a jeer falcon how to catch a crane by training it with a, with a rabbit. So really impractical, expensive um, methods for teaching in order to, for teaching these hawks and for teaching other falconers to train their hawks in order to really create art in the air. So Sarah, can, for our audience, can you tell us just a little bit generally about the role of hawks and falcons uh, in the uh, society of the, of, you know, of the Middle Ages? Yeah, sure. So, okay, um, we have to go back to 3000 BCE or maybe earlier to the Eurasian steppe. Um, so when we're talking about the Middle Ages in Europe, 
And we have to zoom forward to about the fifth century and when Germanic tribes would have had contact with the Huns and in the Mediterranean, they would have had contact with the um, Byzantine Empire. And here is really where that um, takes flight. Sorry, in the in in Europe, um, where falconry really catches on, um, Frederick, in um, meeting with some falconers from um, the Middle East, brings in the hood into Europe. But by the 13th century, it's so popular that just for an example, um, in, there are if you look at 47 French hunting texts. Out of those 47, 33 deal exclusively with falconry and only seven deal exclusively with hunting with dogs. Um, so it was really, really, really popular um, in the 13th century. Men and women are practicing it. I mean, you would go around in a court, everybody would have would have their falcon, would have their hawk with them. Um, and so it was something, and, and what I think, another thing that is really something for us to think about is that at a time when women were not really invited to participate in a lot of outdoor activities that men were participating in, and falconry was something that was would have been expected and part of their educational program. So much more prevalent. Um, it's such a treat for us today to have a real life falconer with us um, in the Middle Ages. We would just like pull, for, pull a person off the street, right? <laughs> um, come and join, come and join our discussion. So very popular, um, especially for the upper class population. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're part of uh, an, a kind of elite aristocratic culture. And I'm going to guess that, that along that they sort of serve alongside horses and dogs as kind of emblematic animals for an aristocratic identity. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about maybe what the differences are between the way they thought about training uh, dogs or horses and the way they thought about training hawks and falcons. Yeah, so as the opening passage suggests, and I think Frederick takes, it sounds very cynical, um, but I think um, that passage of, of really like, when you are encountering a hawk, it's not coming back to you because it feels respect for you or it's socialized to do so. Because, and this is, this is different in the New World hawks, like Harris hawks, which hunt in packs. But in Europe, the hawks that, and falcons they would have had access to, they're not social creatures. So they do not have a pack mentality. They're not looking to um, an alpha. Again, that's not the same for some other species of hawks that, um, you know, would, that people from Europe would encounter much later. Um, so that means that the only way to really have them return to the fist is to condition them with to condition their weight. So earlier, um, we learned that Vesper was at a high weight, right? Um, and this is the same, I think this is what is so neat, right? You probably have a digital scale where yeah. you can weigh her and the falconers in the middle ages, they would use their, their, their fist and then feel the keel yeah. of the bird, feel the, um, the breastbone. Okay. So keeping their weight lower would mean that they would return to the fist. And um, so, that would be the primary way they'd get them to come back. Um, and the bells, of course, like we don't have, we didn't have GPS right back then. So they're using the bells in case they do not decide to come back to the fist. Um, even though in that opening passage, it seems like Frederick is saying there's no affection there. I really think, and when you, and the Latin is really beautiful and very repetitious. And I think one of the things that does happen though, is that the people that encounter them certainly become very, trained by the hawks to feel that affection and really change their 
ways of living to accommodate them. So for example, like I'm noticing, right, you have to micro move your body all the time Mm -hmm. just to accommodate your hawk. And it's so natural um, by now, but that does take some kind of displacement of your own sense of like, I'm a complete you know, identity and human. And that's where I stop. I finish start and stop. Right. Yeah, absolutely. There's definitely some accommodation and everything I do is to make sure she is comfortable. She's happy. She's relaxed. And there's definitely some training involved. I remember when I was very young, starting out in falconry, my you know sponsor would put a coffee cup in my hand and tell me not to spill it. And I'd have to walk around with that all day long. And if I spilled a drop, it was ruined. So um, everything I do is to make sure she's happy and comfortable. And that's really what falconry is about is you wrap your life around it. Everything you do is about the hawk and about the bird. And, um, you know, where you live is determined by, can you house a hawk there? And where you hunt is determined by, is it open to falconry? Is there game involved? Um, the cars you choose, the dogs you have, everything in your life is kind of enraptured around this very passionate art or sport. Yeah. And I think that brings up a good point. I want to go back to, um, you know, the different types of hawks that someone might have and where they could hunt. So um, I'm using the sort of catch-all term hawk. Um, So hawks are, that's kind of a lazy way of just referring to those birds of prey that you train, that falconers train. But then within that, right, there are um, falcons and they hunt in the air. So they require a lot more space. So someone who doesn't have today or in the middle ages, you know, access to a lot of land is not going to be able to hunt successfully with a falcon Um, a goshawk or a sparrowhawk um, in Europe, right? Those are going to hunt through the forest. So someone might be able to, someone who doesn't have that much land, does not have that much access to a lot of hunting land might have more success, you know, with one of those kinds of birds. So it all depends what kind of hunting style the bird has. Now, Frederick, his treatise is about falcons exclusively. He planned to write another treatise about hawks, but um, either it was lost or he never did. And and so he is the Holy Roman Emperor. He has access to all the land. So he could talk about, you know, using all the falcons that need miles and miles and miles to go after their giant flight birds. Um, but yeah, so where, where do you take your bird hunting? So where you go hunting is primarily dependent on the kind of bird you have. You need to know that you're putting the apical game species under that bird. So for our red-tailed hawks, which are very common here in Michigan, we're primarily hunting rabbits and squirrels. They're larger mammals than they would usually take in the wild. Um, Primarily, they'd go after mice, small rodent snakes, things like that. But um, we're asking her to, you know, take larger prey items, you know, put a little more oomph into it. And so usually I um, specialize in more hardwoods. Um, she's a very good squirrel bird, and that's what she prefers to hunt. Um, so lots of acorns, um, lots of oak trees, um, forests that are you know good natural habitat for squirrels is where we primarily hunt. We'll also look for um, edge of the woods where there's a lot of rabbits because they'll also go after rabbits. Um, we do also have a goshawk, a northern goshawk, who is um, a native bird to the United States in Michigan. Um, and he primarily goes after rabbits, ducks, pheasants. He's a much more versatile bird. So we can hunt him in a wider range of habitats. Um, whereas the falcons, like you said, need a lot more space. And I do have a friend who has falcons in Michigan, but she has had to adapt her hunting style drastically to accommodate those birds. I um, mean, it's much more specific where she can hunt and she has to drive much farther to find good hunting spots. Um, but Vesper and most of the red tails are 
very easy to work with. There's a lot of land here in Michigan that's open to us to hunt that you know, we can be successful with them and find numerous squirrels and rabbits and prey items for them. So tell me, so what, what is Vesper's to... style of, of hunting? Does Vesper hang out in the sky or hunt from your fist or? Yeah, absolutely. So every, just like we said, uh, every bird has kind of a different hunting style and a different habitat where they hunt. So the red tail hunting style is primarily a follow along style where when I go out hunting with her, I take her out to the woods. Um, like Sarah said earlier, we are very fortunate that we have GPS telemetry nowadays where I affix a little transmitter to her leg or to a little tail mount. I take all of her equipment off. I take her leash off. I take her jesses off, which are these little leather straps. Um, and then I just let her up into the sky and she'll find a nice little perch on a tree. She'll poof out her feathers, give a nice rout and then really get comfortable in that habitat and survey her area. And then my job as the falconer is kind of a hunting dog. I am down there on the ground, I'm beating the brush, I am trying to look for a rabbit sign, I am looking up in the trees to see is there a squirrel nest up there, are there vines I can tug on? And my job is to give her um, an easier opportunity at a rabbit or a squirrel. And we've got a little hunting dog named Kida down here as well, who is her hunting partner. And her job is to find the rabbits and squirrels. And so she alerts when she smells something and it's this really amazing interspecies relationship to watch as Vesper primarily follows the dog and then I'm just running after with my short little legs to try and catch up on the action. Um, so that's kind of what our hunting style is like. It's more she follows us and we're trying to find the prey for her um, or sometimes she leads the hunt where she sees something first and I'm going after her to catch up with her. It's interesting that you talk about that interspecies um, sort of collaboration that's going on when I, as an art historian, I'm very familiar with the uh, images, um, mostly from 14th century mirror cases. So these are ivory carved mirror cases. So the mirror would be on one side and then the little sort of low relief sculpture on the other side. They're about the size of a large pancake. And um, probably the most common theme on those mirror cases is hunting with hawks. So often you have a woman and a man hunting together. So it's kind of, I, I'm sure Sarah can talk about this metaphor for courtship and sort of sexual pursuit. Um, and they'll have hawks or falcons. I, I'm not expert enough to tell you what the iconography, um, iconographic differences would be, but um, they're riding on horses and they have their hunting hounds with them. So it's actually a four-way um interspecies collaboration the the hunters are on horseback and then you have the dogs and you have the um the falcons or hawks so dogs horses people and birds absolutely sarah do you find that in the in the, some of the uh the treaties treatises of the the middle ages that there's commentary on the kind of multi-species role with dogs and horses being part of the mix yeah, Frederick does talk about, um, you know, when, when the hawk is first captured, it's put in like a giant sock and can't see anything. He does bring the hood over from the Middle East, but he also wants to completely close the eyes by actually putting some sutures, some thread, and then closing the eyes that way. And um, it's called sealing the hawk. And um, so they have to start because their eyes are so incredibly sensitive and really just we cannot fathom. We do not have the number of cones that they have, like we can't understand. Um, 
but he he did know you know this was it was so important to prevent them from seeing anything that might traumatize them that might um scare them and create these lasting memories so taking their sight away when they're first captured makes it so they don't associate you strange you know human on a horse with this dog with that moment of capture mm -hmm. so then it's the job of the falconer to slowly introduce all of the elements that are going to be part of the hawk's life including the dog and the horse um, and but first and foremost the human's face which is utterly terrifying without that slow introduction. Mm -hmm. So they have to be in a very dark muse or um, house for the hawk um, and really spend a lot of time with the falconer at the beginning in the dark and then slowly with the candle. Um, I'll send some images later, but I've got my treatise open to that precise moment where there's an introduction of a candle. Okay, now we've got the human face, we can bring the dog in, we can get the, the, the sounds and those sights slowly introduced. Um, we can start walking around with the hawk on the fist and now we can start riding a horse. So the hawk mm -hmm. is used to that. So really just slow habituation of um, the really alien elements that are not part of its life before capture. That is very accurate. And as you're you know, recounting his writings, you know, I very much experienced that with Vesper in the early days of you know, keeping it very calm and dark and quiet and sitting with her on the fist and making no movements and just allowing her to become accommodated with my presence and my voice and slowly introducing you know, a little more light, a little more movement until she was comfortable. And it's all positive reinforcement. You know, they're, they're not social animals, like you said, so they don't understand you know, negative reinforcement. And so everything has to be kind of kept at their own terms. And when they're ready for it, you're allowed to move to that next step. Yeah, Did everything you know? has to be added to their environment. Did you have to spend a lot of time sitting with Vesper yes. and staying up all night. We yes. hear tales in the middle ages of people. Yep, it's certainly still accurate. Um, when I first got her and um, we trapped her from the wild. So in modern day falconry uh, here in the United States, we're allowed to trap raptors from the wild when they're less than a year of age. Um, here's a nice rouse for you. She's nice, calm, comfy. Um, she'll erect all of her feathers and shake them for those that didn't get to see that on the video. Uh, but we trap them from the wild and then when we bring them home, usually we wait till the evening where it's nice and dark and we keep them in a nice and dark area. And you find the comfiest chair you can and you just sit there very still and you bring them out of the box or you will unhood them if they have a hood on. I mean, you just hold very still and at first they put out their wings and they open their mouth because they think that you're a predator and you're about to eat them. And so they're in very much a defensive posture and you just stay like that for hours. And every now and then they'll kind of slip back and fall off the glove and you have to ever so gently just kind of help them back on and they'll kind of freak out again and they may bait. And during that process, you also have um, a piece of food on the glove, like a, a rabbit leg or a chipmunk, something that they recognize as food. And basically what you're waiting for is their hunger to be greater than their fear of you. And when that happens, they'll tentatively bow down and when that's a very vulnerable position for them to expose the back of their neck to what they think is a predator mm -hmm. and once they start eating they can start trusting the falconer and that's when training and formal activities can really start taking place but it is a very long process and it usually takes a couple of days just sitting there in the dark getting them exposed to you being very calm very quiet with them and just getting them and see your presence there's a great um it's kind of a trope, a medieval challenge. Um, you can find it in like the medieval French romance melusine um, of, okay, the knight to pass this challenge, he has to sit in this castle with the hawk on his yeah. fist for 
six days and seven nights, mm-hmm. right, without falling asleep. Um, and so it seems really wacky until you read the treatises and understand, oh, okay, that's the that's the actual training process of the hawk. So you're just basically helping to break in this hawk for the lady of the castle or whomever. Absolutely. And there are very fond memories of me carrying her on the fist all day long, having to learn how to use the bathroom with one hand, doing my homework with one hand, and doing all of my daily activities with this big giant bird on my hand with only my right hand up, you know, available to do everyday normal activities. So she was my partner. So I'm imagining that medieval aristocrats themselves didn't have, I mean, Frederick had an empire to rule. Yes. Um, yes. So, um, I mean, yes, he was refusing to go on crusade, maybe because he wanted to stay home and look after his hawks. But um, an alternate explanation for that. Um, but, you know, there must have been a class of people who specialized in this. A similar, I mean, we're talking about the 13th, 14th century, where you do start to have the sort of development of a professional artist class, people who are not monks or nuns working in their cloistered environment, but actually, you know, professional artists getting contracts and getting paid for their work sometimes, um, sometimes not getting paid. But, you know, the idea of a sort of class of people who are specialists, falconers. The hawks would definitely eat better than them if they were in the employ of the castle um, or the empire. But yeah, um, and what's really cool or I think fascinating about this, um, women are employed to help mm-hmm. train and heal hawks. Men are employed um, and they are doing a lot of that um, uncomfortable work of the, especially the initial phases, making sure and then, you know, OK, the hawk is now ready and can be transferred to the fist of someone that it doesn't know as well. Um, the aristocrat, be that the emperor or um, a, a, you know someone of a lower station would still be expected to have that theoretical and technical knowledge um, because the training can regress really at any point. Um, and so if the employed falconer was not in the immediate vicinity of where um, the training needs to sort of go back a few steps, the person handling it could either ruin the hawk completely or um, go back a few steps and start that training from an earlier process. Um, but yeah, I mean, I love in the history of it that there are records of women being paid for those services as well as men. That's so interesting. And I also think it is relevant to this theme that I've already sort of brought up of the courtship metaphor of training a bird. I mean, the intensity, Kelly, of the experience you're describing, I mean, any relationship, any human relationship that started out that way would probably be headed for the rocks, right? Like you would just get overload of the other person. But, um, but you know, I'm thinking, for example, there's a very famous manuscript called the Manessa Codex, or the Great Heidelberg Book of Songs, which is all of these German sort of romantic poems. And it has this wonderful imagery of falconry in it. I'm sure you're familiar with that, Sarah and Kelly, but the um, images of sort of wooing. It also has a story about a man who, you know, is a hawk and also a human, which is similar to this um, lay of Marie de France, Yannick, that I know you've written about, Sarah. But in any case, maybe this is an opportunity to talk a little bit about that relationship between sort of human romance and falconry. 
Yeah. So, and we'll have to get, I know, I actually know Alexa from your work on mirror cases and, um, and I've got an image in the book, um, thanks to an article I read of yours. So we'll have to show the people that are looking at the podcast on YouTube that, um, an image of that. Um, so there are so many reasons why I think artists and poets thought, oh, it would be really great to map the enterprise of falconry onto love relationships. Um, you've got the training, the kind of idea of um, we wearying someone or something into submission. That's what it seems like on the outside. But um, we've by now heard Kelly describe the many ways that her life has been changed. And some might say she's been, you know, put out by having to accommodate the bird. And um, so, so I think the, the main thing that I want people to take away from when they think about using falconry as a kind of metaphor for courtship is that it's not a very easy one-to-one -one correspondence for a couple of reasons. And um, we could talk about the fact that for hawks, the females are dominant. They're the ones in control. They're in control because they're bigger. They're in charge of the nest. Um, they're in charge of reproduction, right? Um, and so when we take writings from the Middle Ages that talk about the female hawk and map them onto humans where the female sex is denigrated and is at the bottom of the hierarchy, we're missing something there. So that's one. Um, but like I've been saying, women practiced this art as well. So they're in on the joke. They're not um, you know, unaware of any of the training terms. So that training is a two-way street and it can go both ways. And if the most ideal hawk to have is a female hawk and you've got a female falconer with the female hawk, I think that creates other, other ways to think about kind of autonomy and relationships. Um, and then... Yeah, I mean, I think thinking about that women participated in this activity, that the training actually kind of went both ways. Um, the falconer was put out a lot um, by having the, the falcon or hawk in, in, in their life. Um, and then the species of, of hawks, you know, that in that species, the female is the dominant one. And so I think... When we tend to look, because most of us don't practice falconry, so when we look at the, that iconography or those metaphors, we just think, oh, here's another instance of, you know, men keeping women down, like humans keeping animals down. And I think it's just not that simple when we start to look at it from the inside, from this practice that was really prevalent and respected. Yeah, you are absolutely 100% correct, Sarah. So everything you said is absolutely true. It's very much a... The human is the lesser of the species here. I am a glorified bird slave, as I like to put it. Um, you know, I am very much submissive to what she needs and where she wants to go. Um, and it's very much this this relationship that we have with them. And again, they don't love us. They're, you know, utilizing us as an easier source of food. Um, but it is very much a kind of one way street. I'm very much submissive to her. So it seems a shame that one of the most famous literary uh, uses of the metaphor is in The Taming of the Shrew. Um, I've got that slide pulled right up, Ian. I can't believe it. <laughs> you know, in which it it's, uh, you know, a reference to a very, uh, you know, an abusive relationship. Uh, and is that is that simply because what was true in the Middle Ages has been lost by Shakespeare's time? Or is it the case that it should make us rethink, say, The Taming of the Shrew? 
Um, I, I think both are true. I think so. I argue that, like, you know, when you start to look at the references to it in the 13th century, um, that women are using it as their personal steel emblem. It's the most common image. Um, like Alexa already talked about the mirror valves. So um, we're seeing the iconography that associates women with hawks everywhere. Um, but I think that as time goes on in the later Middle Ages, um, there's a sort of collective cultural realization that maybe women have been given too much autonomy, too much participation in this, and how can we rein it in? And, um, you know, we always see that in, in, in society, right? Like women have too many freedoms. Let's take the sum away. Um, let's start by doing that with some popular culture, with some plays, right? So I do think there's a way to read The Taming of the Shrew as at the end of kind of, or this trajectory, this downward trajectory of associating falconry and women with this autonomy and freedom that they have. But I also think that this play can be read, that a lot of that ambivalence and ambiguity can be read into this play, that it's not as straightforwardly misogynistic as it appears, especially if you look at right um, the ending of the play and read this passage back through that. So if it's true that the human is just a glorified bird slave, right, um, then this passage in which she's talking about withholding food, withholding sleep, withholding all these things from Kate and like, like she's a falcon. And we have to remember people at the time are actually practicing it and they're going, that's not how it works, right? Absolutely. And there's even things today, you know, a lot of people romanticize this sport and think, oh, I have complete and utter control of this bird. And the truth is, I don't. As soon as I take off these dresses, I'm completely out of control. She does what she wants to do. She's flying where she wants to come. She can always decide not to come back. That's the thing. It's a relationship. Um, and it is very much like courting. In the early stages, I'm doing everything I can to make her comfortable, to make her happy, to meet her needs. Uh, and it's interesting that you bring up women in the sport of falconry as well. I know you can probably go into this very much in depth, Sarah, um, but there's a hierarchy to the birds that you can have and you know, your societal status. So the, the Merlin was known as the lady's bird or the woman's falcon. Um, we don't necessarily have that today, but one of the interesting things to incorporate women into the sport of falconry is there's a lot more women becoming involved. You know, 20, 30 years ago, it was very much a male dominated sport. It was very, very uncommon to see women falconers. And now today, there's almost equally the amount of women falconers and they're doing amazing things. Um, Lauren McGow was a very big name in falconry. She is an eagle falconer. She went to Mongolia and brought the practices back with her. And there are so many incredible women in the sport today. And it's wonderful to see that come back. So, do you yeah. think that Helen McDonald has something to do with that? I mean, that yeah. uh, book, H is for it Hawk, is such, yeah. a, such a widely read and admired work. Absolutely. And she's definitely inspired a lot of people to start pursuing the sport. And we hear that a lot. And we ask people, you know, how did you come to the sport? Because a lot of people have very different backgrounds. Some people come from a hunting aspect, some come from a bird watching aspect, some people have had parrots. Um, and a lot of people come to me and say, well, I read my side of the mountain, I read H's for Hawk. And that's how they get involved and kind of get a glimpse of that passion that you can have for these raptors in the sport. Um, so the people that are in the literature world and you know write these beautiful, wonderful books and um, a lot of the books that we still use today from medieval falconry um, are definitely inspirational things in this sport that are very, very useful. Yeah, I mean, falconers have told me that a lot of the things that, that Frederick mentions or talks mm -hmm. about, you know, maybe not the ceiling in the West, the sewing of the eyelids, but a lot of these practices are still really relevant. Mm -hmm. um, 
your listeners might really enjoy um, an earlier book by Helen McDonald just called Falcon, if they're not into memoirs. Um, and that reveals a lot of the just kind of in, incredible facts about the um, bodily makeup of, of those birds. Yeah, I want to ask you about that term falcon, too, um, oh, okay. <laughs> because we're talking about hawks and falcons and we're not being very species specific here. But what is a falcon specifically? So um, there are three kinds of falconry birds. There are the broad wing birds um, and those are the buteos, so like the red tailed hawk. Um, there are the occipiters or kippiters, and those are like the goshawks. They've got um, yellow eyes that turn to red. Um, they're a little bit more frightening, very more reptilian. Um, and, <laughs> and then there are the um, long wing hawks, and those are the falcons. Um, and the shape of the wing is different. Um, it looks much more like a V. Um, and don't let the word long you know, throw you off because a lot of times they are smaller than like the broad wing hawks. Um, so that is technically, you know, what, how those, how, what that term means. I thought you were going to ask me about the, how that term was used in the middle ages. Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, so <laughs> that term, so, you know, we know in the middle ages, French kind of becomes this language that even if you're in England, right, you're understanding French. And so there's a lot of crossover, linguistic crossover. Um, so the term falcon, um, it sounds like faux, like you might have a faux pas, right, if you make a misstep um, or a faux fur. So faucon, and then that word con is the C word. So it means female genitalia. Um, so there's a great little story about um, a squire who is lusting after his lord's wife and he uses this pun to help gain access to her so he says he is going on a hunger strike unless the lord will give him his falcon um and the lady understands you know the joke and she says yes my lord he just wants your your falcon your falcon and the lord says well give it to him so he doesn't die so then they're able to have um a tryst um and so like in the mirror case there's this one great mirror case where um there is a falcon and a man and a woman and they're sitting and um, he is pointing directly um, down at her um, where her legs are. His legs are crossed. She's got her fist out um, with a glove on it and the hawk is getting ready or the hawk or falcon is getting ready, probably falcon in this case, right? Is getting ready to jump right to her glove. Um, and so, and she's actually got a hood in the other hand. And um, so there's like just so much sexual innuendo um, in, in this illustration. Um, the other thing I wanted to say, um, Kelly, when you were talking about the Merlin as the woman's bird, you know, it's really interesting, like, and this is true, right? They said, okay, well, sparrowhawks and Merlins, they're smaller, so they're more suitable for women. I mean, these hawks, even your hawks, they're not very heavy. Like, eagles are heavy, but hawks are not very heavy. Um, but the thing is, it actually takes a lot more skill on the part of the falconer to not kill a small bird. So, like, in this country beginner falconers can have red-tailed hawks or American kestrels, but because you have to monitor their weight so closely and you're keeping their weight down, it's a lot easier to start out with a bigger bird than with a smaller bird. So there's another way where it doesn't look like a woman might actually have to be more skillful to do the thing that's better suited to her body, but she does have to be more skillful in, in portioning out the food. There's no digital scale. So in just understanding is my bird you know, strong enough to fly, but not so overfed that she won't come back to me. Certainly. 
And I actually started out with a kestrel, a female kestrel, and her window was 98 grams. And half a gram in either direction was dangerous. And I weighed her at three times a day and we fed her to the 10th of a gram. So it is very detailed. It has to be very accurate because you're dealing with the bird's metabolism and you need to know what their rate of burn is and how fast they're going to go through that depending on the temperature and their activity level. And you can get into dangerous zones there. So larger birds offer a lot more kind of window of error. So you mentioned that uh, if you if the bird is too hungry, it will just fly away, which means in some ways that they are they're still wild no matter what oh, you do. Um, which means the training is, a, is, I guess we could call it taming or, you know, but it's not domestication, unlike dogs and horses that are firmly domesticated animals. And is that distinction, like how, um, in the middle ages, how recognized is that distinction between what we would call domesticated versus wild and tamed? Yeah, absolutely. I think that opening passage really shows Frederick trying to say, hey, this is not the relationship you're going to have with your dog, with your horse. Remember that the bottom line here is taste is food. Um, Do not fool yourself here. Um, And I think he also says, I'm not going to be writing about hunting with quadrupeds because that's easier, right? It's much harder to, to hunt with something, to train a bird that by all accounts should flee from me because I am a human and that bird should fear me. Um, And so I have to bring myself down so that it doesn't fear me, but not because I'm instilling love and trust in it, right? Just because of my technical skill in accommodating and responding to the needs of that wild animal. So it will never look like that bird is tame, um, you know, but all of the circumstances of training can create a situation where that bird can be in different atmospheres with a lot of people, with a lot of noise, um, because of the training that it has undergone. So there's habit and there's training, but it's not domestication. Yeah. In the modern falconry sense, we call it manning. We are manning the bird and getting them accustomed to our presence and the things that happen around them in their environment. So we go out to outdoorama or big expos for these large hawk talks and you know she's become accommodated to those and she's used to people walking by and she'll sit there and preen because she could care less about who's going by um so yeah it's not domestication it's not quite taming it's kind of this third element that's a lot different than either of those two did they let birds go back to the wild in the middle ages and do um modern falconers in the U.S. let birds go back to the wild. Yes, so you mentioned we're in the molting stage, the mewing phase, right? So this would be the moment where um, in the Middle Ages, you might decide, okay, do is was this hunting season, was this bird so fantastic that it's going to be worth keeping it through the molt? Keeping it through the molt will mean that I can't hunt with it, and I'm going to have to output a lot of meat and care and expense to keep it housed and comfortable. And then when it's when it's gone through the mold, I'm gonna have to retrain it and rehabituate it to my face to go hunting with me. Um, and so a lot of times they'll say, nope, I'll just try again. I'll try with a different bird. 
in the next season. Um, and so they'll, they won't have it go through the, go through the muse. There's of course these extended metaphors, right? Comparing that to when women change, you know, when they go through a kind of change, is it worth keeping them around? Um, so, so it was common for them to keep them if they were a good bird, common for them to let them go out into the wild if they um, didn't feel it was worth keeping them through the, through the mole. Yeah, and that's very similar to our practices today. Um, we may intermew a bird or keep them over the summer while they molt. And while they molt, they need a lot more energy to put out new feathers. And so we're feeding them up to a much higher weight, meaning they're not as tolerant of us and they're much more likely to fly away and never come back. And so we usually keep them in the muse. Some people will basically be hands off over the summer and that hawk will kind of revert to their natural state, their heightened weight and their lack of interaction with the falconer will make them a little more wild. And so just like you said, training isn't this linear process where it's always the same when we bring them back or when we, you know, put them back on the fist in the fall to train them again. You know, we're doing some crayons work or flying on a leash and then we're doing some recall practices and we're introducing hunting again. Um, and just every falconer has their different way of doing things. That's what makes it an art. I know some falconers that will hunt with a bird or catch a bird in the fall, hunt with it over the winter, and then release it in the spring. I know that gentleman has you know, helped 20, 30 different birds. Um, Vesper has been an excellent hunter and she has proven herself over and over again to be a fantastic squirrel hawk. And so we've chosen to keep her and she's also very well mannered as you can see, nice and relaxed here. Um, so every falconer, every bird is different. Um, some birds may not take to falconry. So some birds may not want to come back. They may not understand the training process. They may be a little too high strung and just not as apt to it. Everyone has their own preferences and birds have their own skills. So that bird may not be a good hunter and may go back to the wild. Um, you can release a bird after a couple years and they'll revert back to their own nature. They're not dependent on us as food source. They're not dependent on humans at all. They go back to their natural ways. And a lot of falconers actually believe um, that the bird is a little better off. They've had that training and that process of hunting larger animals, that squirrels, the rabbits, that they may not naturally take in the wild. And so when food does become a little more scarce, they have the confidence and the ability to provide for themselves and their family and their nest. So and that leads wildest. me to a question that I yeah. have about about these birds. And I don't even want to say in captivity now, because mm -hmm. it seems like it's more like a, mm, it's more like a temporary relationship that, you know, mm -hmm. is kind of conditional. But when the birds are in the muse, when they're, when they're in this intense period of relationship with human beings, do they breed or no? Typically not. Um, so the, situation and the circumstances have to be absolutely perfect for that bird to feel comfortable um, as a reproductive partner or to breed. Um, some birds will feel comfortable and will pass and produce eggs. Um, I know an absolutely incredible falconer who has been breeding goshawks, northern goshawks, for almost 40 or she's been a falconer for at least 40 years. I, I'm not entirely certain how long she's been breeding goshawks, but she really is the mate to that bird. She goes through a nest building process and you know, brings food for them and presents it in a way that a mate would. And she has done a lot of um, artificial insemination with these birds to act as their, their partner. Um, but typically in a, a modern falconry sense, they don't breed in captivity in a sense. Um, to breed a bird, you have to meet all of their requirements. You have to have perfect husbandry. They have to be comfortable and confident in your care. Um, and you actually have to have a lot more licensing. You have to have a raptor propagation permit to do so. 
Um, and even at that, it's still highly regulated and there's only certain species that you'll necessarily want to produce. Um, red tails, for example, don't make good breeding birds. You want to have a raptor or a, a red-tailed hawk from the wild or a passage bird, an immature bird, one that is raised from a chick, typically tend to be very, very aggressive. Um, I've heard some falconers relate it to, they view you more as a nest mate and a nest mate is competition. And so they'll come at you and they'll want to steal that food or they'll view you as stealing the food. And you don't have that trusting back and forth relationship that you would have with a passage bird that has a little more respect for you. So when you, you talk about birds maybe being better off in some ways for having gone through a time as a yeah. as a, a a bird on the fist, is uh, how the, the wild seems like it might be a dangerous place for uh, for raptors. How long do immature red tails live yeah, if so they aren't taken in? Absolutely, that's a great question, Ian. Um, and one of the reasons why we are allowed to take these birds from the wild when they're less than a year old, a lot of people don't realize that as incredible these birds are, the mortality rate in the wild is somewhere around 70 to 80% for a red-tailed hawk. So the vast majority of those young birds are not going to survive their first year. And there's a lot of things that can kill them in the wild. We always think of starvation. You know, there's not enough food out there. They're not a good hunter or predation. Great horned owls will readily steal chicks from nests or predate upon older birds. Um, the vast majority of the birds that die in their first year are actually more related to human causes. They get electrocuted on power lines. You know, their wingspan is just long enough that they can touch two wires and then you've got a fried hawk on your hands. I mean, that's one of the dangers that falconry birds also face. And we have to be very aware of when we're hunting in our fields. Um, rodenticides these days, rat and mouse poison that is, you know, readily available on every shelf at a farm store. Um, we see a lot of these birds passing away from rodenticide toxicity, um, being hit by vehicles a lot of them don't make it. And so we can take a bird from the wild when they may have not survived that first year, kind of give a leg up. I like to jokingly call it birdie boot camp. We kind of put them through their paces. Um, we do a lot of exercises to make them a little stronger. We put them in situations where they can catch larger things than they would in the wild. And then we can release them that they have the confidence and the skills to survive a little better in the wild and make it through those harder seasons. I mean, it is thanks to falconers that the peregrine falcon that was on the brink of extinction, thanks to DDT, mm -hmm. right, is now back and thriving um, because falconers um, did just as you said, right, helped to propagate and um, or just make both bring awareness to it and also um, keep a bird and release a bird or make sure that those birds are that their population is not in decline. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of people don't know that a lot of those falconers donated their own peregrines, their own birds to breeding programs to help repopulate those, you know, wild populations. Um, so it's pretty impressive how, you know, falconers are not just hunters. They're not just participating in this art form. They're conservationists. And usually we're conservationists first and foremost is we care about the raptors. The raptors come first in our lives and our practices and our routines. Um, and then their habitat. We can't put game under them. We can't hunt with them if we don't have habitat to hunt them around. And so we do a lot of conservation efforts and work with the environment and with conservation clubs. Like here in Michigan, we have the MUCC or the Michigan United Conservation Clubs that we can go out and volunteer and build habitat for these birds and for their prey items. So I think falconers put it I think you mentioned the the DDT impacts on raptors. And um, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. Mm -hmm. And when I was a child, it was a rare rare event to see a, a bald eagle um and you know 
thanks to the EPA and, and efforts by conservationists, it's now almost uh, work a day. Like you, you see them everywhere. Um, but eagles are another class of raptors that I, I wonder if Frederick writes about them. And then I also am curious whether he came into contact with um, with eagle falconry, with his contacts with the Arab world and his contacts with the Western Asian sort of practices. Yeah. So that taxonomy of like the the eagle for the emperor. No, he did not. He was disdainful towards eagles. Um, he didn't like eagles because they would um, go after his falconry bird. They would go after his falcons. And um, so he, yeah, he was not not a fan of of eagles um, and did not write about coming into contact with them um, through his encounters with um, Arab and Syrian Egyptian falconers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, having a relationship with an eagle is very, very different. It's a much longer intensive process. And so I know a lot of falconers that think eagle falconry is really cool, but it's a very difficult world to get into. Um, and owls are actually used in falconry as well, and they're very different as well. Um, they're much more cat-like in their nature and much harder to work with. It can be done, it's just hard. So it's it seems as though raptors have been at the forefront of a lot of things. We could say that they're the beginnings, <clears throat> the beginning of ornithology, because unlike say chickens or ducks or you know other animal, other birds that are kept right that the falcons produce these kind of treatises that we can see as the sort of beginnings of a kind of um, natural history and then these days of course raptors are at the leading edge of conservation and and have been for many years so there's a kind of consistency in terms of their kind of cultural presence i think has has persisted in some ways although although falconers today are rare <laughs> Right, the division to... between arts and sciences just not true in these treatises and in the practice. Falconers today, there's, I can't remember how many in the United States, and there's quite a number of us, but we're pretty uncommon. Um, we tend to be a little joking, like curmudgeon, troll under the bridge, very secretive about our habits and our um, practices, just because everyone's like, oh, that's a really cool pet, and we have to go through the process of explaining it all over again. And there's some of us that are very happy to share our experiences and walk people through what falconry actually is. Um, but I think here in Michigan, we have, I think somewhere around 100 to 200 falconers. And I don't think all of them have birds at the moment. Um, so pretty uncommon, um, but not hard to find necessarily. We just have to know where to look. Well, we are almost out of time, and I, I wanted to say thank you to you all for giving us your time. Thank you, Vesper. Thank you so much. Such yeah. a treat to talk about this with a real life hawk on on the screen. Yeah, I know. I can't stop just watching her behavior and wondering how she's perceiving all of this human <laughs> chatter, but also. Um, because of what you said about the hawk's vision, I, I wonder what she's seeing too, you know, yeah. as we I just see, her, you know, see a mouse at a mile. And even though I've been with her for six years, every time she preens, everything she does is just still mesmerizing. Yeah. You never lose that passion, that love for them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank, well, thank you, you both. Yeah. Thank you. All right. If you have questions or comments or suggestions about future episodes, We would love to hear from you. 
Just go to realfantasticbeasts.com and you will find lots of ways to join the conversation.